we're reinvigorated. Like we're, I, I'm happy to come to work. I'm not stressed. I can sleep at night. I know that my margins are bright. I know that there's money in the bank. I know the customers are happy. The staff are happy. Like it's kind of, it doesn't get better than that. Because going to work when you know that you are going broke, which is what every person who runs a restaurant probably feels all the time, it's just too hard to do for too long. This week on Dirty Linen, we continue to talk staffing, uh, but with a different skew today, we're looking at the impacts of the pandemic on hospitality business models, asking what kinds of tweaks and wholesale rethinks have made have people made to craft businesses that are more viable, maybe more fun, sometimes simply feasible, and perhaps just better aligned with their hearts, souls, and visions for a balanced life. We're starting in Kyneton with sometime publican Melissa McFarlane, who with her husband, Frank Moylan, caused a tasty stir with the Farmer's Arms in Dalesford, then the Royal George in Kyneton. They also ran the Crimean in North Melbourne after a hiatus in Bulgaria. Melissa hates to see an empty glass and I'm delighted to welcome her to the show. Hi, Melissa. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here. So COVID brought obviously a lot of changes for a lot of people in all kinds of different ways. Give us a little overview of your businesses at the beginning of COVID and then let's talk about what's happened with them. Um, Okay, so I had two businesses in two different industries. So I've had a furniture, vintage furniture sort of homewares business for 11 years and I did it after I thought I was never going back to hospitality. And so then we had to take back the hotel in 2019, um, which was unexpected. So I'm sort of running two businesses at the same time, which was exhausting and I wasn't very good at either of them. And so then COVID happened and I shut everything down and took a big break and had a lot of, did a lot of thinking. And so I moved my furniture business into the hotel, um, which we, had have had for uh, you know many years and that kind of strangely made sense um so and then once i'd sort of recovered from that and had done all the thinking i thought let's do if we have a, a general license let's do a bottle shop and maybe we'll just be specialized in vermouth amari and bitters you know the sort of backbone of uh cocktails um that i like and then we tried to put plants in there with it that maybe went back to the alcohol, but that was kind of impossible in COVID. So it basically became a bottle shop and a plant shop. And that kind of took off in, it made sense to people. Um, and so that's, that's where everything changed for us. So the bottle shop was a necessity to, you know, service loans and stuff like that. Um, and then something grew from that. Wow, it's so interesting because I think, you know, when people, well, when I think about a pub, I really just think about a pub and all the, the I suppose you can have lots of different food offerings, accommodation offerings, band offerings within a pub. But, yeah, a, a plant shop and a furniture shop, I just don't think I've ever heard of that in a pub building. No, well, I mean, uh you know, the pub, I mean, I love pubs. Obviously, this is our fourth attempt at one. Um, and they, 
but they're sort of so fixed in, you know, what they can be. And so if you think about all the country hotels around Victoria that are all for sale, by the way, um, you know, how can they become something else? And they often got chopped in half and one became, you know, for example, a furniture store. It might, In the case of this hotel, there was a hairdresser in it. Um, so they kind of were divided up. Mm. And now, and so from that point, I thought, okay, well, it is, it is okay to do that. I just don't have a physical wall in between what is hospitality and what is furniture. Um, so that's how I kind of, you know, could sort of arrive at that and feel comfortable that it wasn't, you know, the craziest idea ever. Yeah, but. sure. So so in just backtracking to 2019, you said you took the pub back. What was the situation there? Because you've got the – you own the building, don't you? Yeah, and so um, the tenants went bankrupt. They, uh, you know, they surrendered their lease and we had to take it back. And at that stage it wasn't worth anything because it couldn't sustain a business. And hotels are only worth what business can exist in it. So in the country, you know, the city or hotel can be worth its land and someone can develop it and turn it into apartments, but in the country it's only worth what rent it can generate and if it can't sustain a business, then the rent must drop. Um, unless you want a tenant for three months, you know, and we always wanted a tenant that could survive. So it sort of became... Um, you know, we had to take it back, fix it up, and so we started a little um, sort of, you know, a gastro pub model, something for the locals, something fun, um, and we did that for a year, and it was okay, but um, there was that, you know, that recession coming before COVID, so we down we we sort of downsized anyway, and started thinking seriously before our hands were forced. Mm. It's so interesting that you talk about this pre-COVID recession. I mean, do you th is that where staff were hard to come by? The, 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 that sort of long boom had um, seemed like it was tailing off? Is, I, mean, um, I think, yeah, I think that, I mean, other restaurateurs you speak to kind of talk about like the average spend going down around then, that people aren't going on all the rides when they go out for dinner. They're just maybe confining it to a main and, one bottle of wine. Um, Staffing's always a challenge in the country, like always. You just, you know that that's going to be your long-term problem. Um, but for us it was that just the average spend wasn't there, that tourists uh, weren't visiting Kyneton, you know, and Kyneton um, doesn't have many overnight stays, like Dalesford, for example. So, I think that you can. There's only 200 beds in Kyneton, so the tourist offering, um, you know, is important. But split across, and we've got some really good restaurants here. Like split across those restaurants, there's, you know, there's not many. Yeah, so it was about average spend for us. And so, as you've you put in the you put in the plants and you put in the bottle shop and then you've also added a bar can you sort of talk about what the offering is at the moment um okay so it's a two-story hotel downstairs is um pretty much all the furniture but the furniture is glassware and um textiles and uh you know objects 
Um, and then you walk upstairs and then upstairs is a c- continuation of retail, but in that there is a bottle shop and we've got like 140 now um, vermouth bitters Amari. So getting a pretty substantial collection. And then we have a fragrance counter as well because, of course, you would. And then you walk into this cocktail bar and so you can be sort of the idea is I want it to be like a department store where you're wandering around and go, oh, that's nice. And, oh, that's nice. And hold on, I can have a cocktail as well. Um, so it's that sense of discovery. And then so we have a um, – the bottle shop and you walk into the bar and so there is a pretty substantial list of all the so you can buy every single one of the amari um, bitters and vermis to take home or you can have it in-house or you can build your own sort of cocktails with it and then we do and from a food point of view it is you know beautiful cheese local charcuterie pate um you know those kind of day drinking um snacks and that's pretty much it and so you don't need a chef nope and you can have a drink and wander around and look at the furniture etc yeah you can in the day but at night we sort of close down the furniture because people you know have more than one drink (laughs) start really Uh, testing things out exactly we've also got a bed up there because we sell bed heads and bed linen and we have found people in the bed (laughs) <laughs> at night. <laughs> um, Who did you find in the bed? Let, let, um, were they asleep? Know, what state were they in? <laughs> <laughs> they had had several cocktails. Yeah. Um, interesting. This is R-rated, by the way. Oh, okay. not, not officially, but we've had, <laughs> we've had people say all kinds of things on this podcast. Um, okay. So how are you feeling about your businesses? Um, well, I'm feeling incredibly privilege and lucky that I have been able to because I had two strings that um, though it was stressful at the time I've been able to merge them and you know um, for I'm really sort of lucky that I've been able to do that and you know we have this old hotel that you know had you know, in two th- in 2020 was looking like a white elephant so I'm um uh, we're, but we're reinvigorated. Like we're, I, I'm happy to come to work. I'm not stressed. I can sleep at night. I know that my margins are right. I know that there's money in the bank. I know the customers are happy. The staff are happy. Like it's kind of, it doesn't get better than that because going to work when you know that you are going broke, which is what every person who runs a restaurant probably feels all the time it's just too hard to do for too long I mean I, I, do, I do think about you in that period of 2019 when you'd taken back the pub in circumstances that weren't of your choosing you'd sort of cranked up the gastro pub offering I mean what was that feeling like um yeah that was uh, yeah it you know it had a sense of obligation to it and you know we kind of didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't, a cho- it wasn't our choosing. And, you know, we had stopped doing hospitality. So to turn back on your, turn back on your interests was really hard, but COVID gave us the opportunity to kind of stop and go, okay, if we're going to do it, 
let's just do stuff that we really love and are interested in. And so we've, you know, we've done that and it works and it's better for our, you know, our mental health. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, I only know you guys through being in venues that you've run and I would say that you have always seem to create such a sense of hospitality, like that your real believers in the art of hospitality. So it's really interesting to sort of hear about, you know, you, you sort of feeling like you'd left it and you've been able to re-enter that world in a, in a, with a different skew. But I mean, I mean, how does that sit with you? Do you, do you sort of believe in hospitality? Did you just fall out of love with it? I mean, you know, what, what are those, what are those pressures there? So I think that we will, always hospitality to us is a calling where people pleases so we're not necessarily always looking at the bottom line and margin like proper business people do because we just love you know creating spaces that people have fun in um so so then when it's but then if that's not working you know financially um you you can't do it for too for too long but saying that I still think that we're in hospitality even though it's 90% or let's say 80% retail and 20% hospitality we still see that we're in hospitality because we're you know hospitality is a bottle shop still isn't it if you you know it doesn't have to just be about food it's about reading people and you know, telling them a story and introducing them to something new and showing them, you know, alternatives. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd also say that you could probably put a hospitality lens on perfume and furniture. Yeah, I do. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, yeah, it's customer service. is and But we're in the country, so there's a little bit of tourism in there as well. So you kind of have to do a bit more storytelling than maybe that you do in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, we, are, we love our version of hospitality at the moment. Mm, that's so great. And from a staffing point of view, can you just talk about, you know, what, what that has been like and what it's like at the moment? Um, okay, so because the margin in retail is better than the margin in food, from a cost point of view, it is, it is great compared to running, um, you know, like a middle-of-the-range kind of restaurant. Um, staffing it, like finding people, we have been blessed. Wow. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to all the people that aren't. But because we're offering something that's not so, uh, doesn't exhaust you so much, we only trade late two nights a week. Um, There's people that want to work for us because there's other things that they can do. It's not just, you know, taking plates to tables and polishing cutlery. You know, it's got a little bit more to it. So, you know, we are, we have like, we need one more person for us to go seven days, which is incredible. Um, But yeah, we've been blessed. And I know that other people haven't, but it's, I think it's because, there's a balance in there for the workload and 
there's other things to be done and to get excited about at work. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that so many hospitality people have had that opportunity to reflect on work-life balance through COVID and a lot of people have come out the other side saying, no, nah, I'm just not going to do do those hours anymore. Um, so I think businesses that are able to meet meet those uh, those new uh, decisions, those new modes of being are certainly at an advantage. Yeah, I mean, and so some of the owners would, uh, of businesses would probably go, you know what, I don't want to do that either. And, um, you know, so we're only trading late till, and our late's 10 p.m., like that's it, you know. So, um, yeah, so much, so much has changed. But I wonder what will happen in, say, three months' time, six months' time when um, the realities of employment might kick in a little bit more and people will come back to it. But they've had a break for a year. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that one. It's a- mm. Melissa, how did you get into the industry? Uh, um, I met Frank and uh, he had a bar and um, then I said, well, um, you know, we should open our own and we went to Adelaide to open a bar and we were young and, you know, foolish and, yeah, just been hooked on it ever since. Because I'm an interior designer as well. I love creating the space and... Um, you know, creating a an experience, I suppose. Mm, interesting. So I didn't go to school or I wasn't a chef or, any, you know, anything like that. It was just like I like having people around to my house. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Why don't you open a bar? <laughs> Which it wasn't. <laughs> anyway, um, that's, yeah, or I was born to it. Must have been. So I remember when you opened the Farmer's Arms in Dalesford and it really just did feel like a bit of a, a new burst of energy and possibility for a country pub. What was it? What was, yeah. when was that actually that you started, um, started or took that pub on and, and made it what it was? Um, it was the first day of GST. So July 1st, 2000. And of course, being people pleasers and not financially uh, savvy. We didn't put the GST up 10% on the first day that we should have. Yeah, we didn't put the price up, the 10%. We just went, people won't pay that for a beer. And, like, that wasn't our choice, but we just took it all on, you know. We were babies. And our learning curve was very steep. And we probably didn't know what we were doing for four years, I'd say, truthfully. But, um, yeah, I mean... I mean, it, you know, we thought it would take us years to do anyway, but it was Dalesford and, you know, it was a, it was a good time. There were, there were possibilities um, about what could happen in the regions. There was that whole regional food tourism stuff that was happening, you know, the symposiums and stuff like that that we went to, and there was a lot of talk about the possibilities of what things could be like in the country which we now take for granted. But before that, you couldn't, you know, there wasn't even coffee machines. 
Yeah, it was definitely felt, I mean, obviously Lakehouse um, and Alla and the team there had done so much for Dalesford and for regional tourism in Victoria and Australia generally, but I feel like the Farmer's Arms really gave the whole scene a, a real kick along with a different different kind of offering. Um, I had no idea. Really? Oh, I'm, yeah. I, yeah. It does seem like really hard work. Oh, my God, I bet it did. Yeah, it's so interesting. Perspective is so interesting, isn't it? Because for me it was just like, wow, this is so good. It feels like being in the country, but it's got a bit of that city polish and um, it's very, you know, it's great produce but quite simple and, yeah, I just loved it. I thought the, the hospitality there was brilliant. Oh, thank you. So, Melissa, I've heard that you guys have a house in Bulgaria, that you've spent a bit of time there. Um, I'm curious about this Bulgarian connection because I've got a bit of a Bulgarian connection myself, but you tell me yours first. Okay, so we had um, basically done, what, six years at the Farmer's Arms and three years at the Royal George and had no holiday. So we um, we went on a holiday Um so that's like say ten years, and we went on a holiday. And when we came back, we fell into that post-European holiday depression, um, and then started googling, you know. And it was just um, people were buying houses in the recently joined EU countries for hardly anything, and we just started this sort of, you know, deep dive on, and we found BulgarianProperties.com, and then just went in and, you know, found all these incredible houses for hardly any money and we just kept going and going and going. Um, And then I said to my mum, that's it, I'm going to Bulgaria to buy a house. And she said, I'm coming with you. (laughs) And so um, my dad would have, he just thought it was like an absolute folly. Anyway, so we went, or just before we went, we got a call from the agent saying, "Would be would we be prepared to be um, the subject of a documentary series of people buying houses?" And the program was called "The New Bulgarians." And we went, "Sure, we'll do that." <laughs> so we arrive, and there's camera, there's like a whole team, production team, you know, cars, cameras, microphones, and anyway, so we be we kind of got swept up in it. And then we had this moment where we looked at some houses and it was, it, it is frontier Bulgaria. It is beautiful, but it is the frontier. And um, my mum just said, you know, we've only got one life, let's do it. So we did it. Um And then we went back another time and they did another little um you know, episode about us and we got it renovated and then so we probably went four times in three years and I love it but then life's gotten in the way and we haven't been back. And is there people in it in the meantime? Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's so amazing. I know (laughs) but we don't know them and we probably don't, um, you know, we probably may not even own it but. It was. It didn't cost much, and it brought us around to having the Crimean, um, which, you know, was, um, you know, I feel I, f- I feel proud of that restaurant because it moved so many people. Like people would cry in there, which is, you know, really unexpected. 
Because it had that real Eastern European yeah, heart and, and soul and, yeah, I guess different wines that people hadn't drunk and some of that real good old um, Middle European food. Um, and more like with the music, we'd often play like 60s pop from, you know, from the Czech Republic or Hungary and a guy sat at the bar and ate goulash and wept you know, one night and, like, we had a Georgian choir, like, pop up in the restaurant, which was amazing. And then because those countries, their food wasn't represented in Melbourne, you know, in that way. And so a lot of people would come in there and get kind of touched. It was in, it was incredible. Um, it was really, yeah, it was really special. Um so my Bulgarian connection is that when I was a kid, my mum would talk about this time when she was a Thomas Cook travel guide and she took, she spent summers all around the place, but she spent a summer in Bulgaria at Zlatni Piazdici, which I'm probably saying wrong, but it means Golden Sands and it's a resort on the Black Sea. So she looked after people there. And then when I was travel writing for Lonely Planet, that was the first overseas destination that I was sent because I, I think they thought, well, she can't do too much wrong with the Bulgarian part of the Eastern European travel guide. So I traveled around Bulgaria by, my, by myself for a couple of months researching that. And it was very post-Soviet. And um, so like the corruption was so much part of life that the, the various mafias would advertise on bus stops for their protection services. Um, and there was, yeah, I, we, I went to Golden Sands, the resort where my mum had worked, and it was basically... Oh, my God, that would have been incredible. It was an absolute ghost town with, like, gun, gunshots um, in walls, and it was it was... It was Easter, around Easter time, it was freezing cold. And I remember I, can't, I somehow on a dare I met some people and I, I um, leapt into the Black Sea on a very cold April day um, and lived to tell the tale. But um, <laughs> I feel like I've never been so cold, shocking, you know, that shocking cold. It just completely takes your breath away. But um, I loved it. And my, you know, my, my dad's Slovak and my, you know, I've got Hungarian grandmothers and when my family's Jewish, so it's kind of different to the Bulgarian history. But I definitely, when I was learning bits of Bulgarian, I felt a little bit like I was remembering it from some deep part of myself within. So, um, yeah, maybe uh, I'll uh, pop by your house in Bulgaria one day and and. Check who really owns it. Yeah, the town that um, it's in has now um, somebody has gone there, and it's called Staro Gelazare Art Town. And this woman has got like mural artists from all over Europe to come and replicate masters on all the walls in the town. It's fascinating, and it changes every year. And they did like classic sort of you know, Renaissance painting, and then somebody came in and did like, um, let's say, uh, Andy Warhol or even Rothko and stuff like that all over the walls of this town and people travel there to, it's, yeah, so I'm hoping somebody's gone in there and done something incredible to our house. Wow, it sounds amazing, and um, yeah, when we can travel again, I might put it put it on the itinerary. Yeah, we um, plan. Yeah, we plan to go back to that. That'd be great to see it. Yeah, so now it's a tourist destination of its own. 
So people just go to this town, yeah. So the new Bulgarians might have made a canny investment back in Maybe. the day. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that one is pure luck. <laughs> Um, Melissa, it's really fantastic to have a chat to you. Um, let's finish by you just telling me why it is that you love um, the vermouth and the Amari, all those those um, parts of the drinking uh, dictionary. Um, I suppose it's because I find it fascinating, the history, but mostly because um, you know that um, – Made I, um, Vermouth, um, Gilles lives up here. So he's the guy that kind of um, catapulted the whole Vermouth culture in Australia, you know, uh, to kind of, uh, you know, what it is now. And it's just, I just find it fascinating, like just eat um, flavour profiles, building it into drinks, um, uh I don't know, it's just it's kind of a bit more exciting than wine. I'm sorry to say it to all the people that love wine and the winemakers that I know. I just, yeah, there's just a lot more uh, going on and you can play around with it a little bit. You can be more creative. I mean, I know that people do blend wine at home, but do you know what I mean? Like you can start sort of making your own um, drinks, I suppose. So that part's fascinating and then there's how long people have been doing it in Italy, France and Spain and then just building great drinks. So, you know, I do still like wine but I find this a little bit more interesting and then I didn't know when I did it that so do a lot of other people. Like it's a little bit nerdy. Like I never set out to have a a thing that, you know, people just get right into but they do and it's it's fantastic. It, it is so great. I mean, it's um, – I love all the different businesses and different skews on, on the world of hospitality. People are able to come up with some of them, you know, you've sort of been shoehorned into or circumstances have taken you there and, and sometimes it's just, you know, it's the vault of inspiration. You just have to do it. And I suppose yours has been a bit of both. Um, it's, uh, yeah, a bit of – a bit of fortune, but a bit of thinking time during uh, that funny old year we had last year. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Melissa. It was really fantastic to talk to you. And, yep, I look forward to seeing you and Frank um, in kind for an interesting drink and a little sneaky lie down in the bed. No, don't worry, I won't do that. <laughs> no, that we do have other beds that you can hire around the town. But, yeah, <laughs> catch the train up and then you can do your hashtag day drinking and then go all the way back. Sounds awesome. Okay, <laughs> take care. Okay, thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. Peace.